Testing, testing. One, two, three. Am I talking to her or you? Talk to her. Oh, just talking to her? Yeah. Okay. Hi, hon. Uh, <laughs> What's up? <laughs> Here's the 5-1 person. <laughs> I love your hair. It's literally so perfect. And you are always like smiling and happy, and it's really cool. You always can put like a smile on my face. And it's always nice having someone around that I can like connect with on a baseball level. Sela, thank you for being such a sweet daughter, and I love you so much. Uh, don't be silly, I want to be serious. Alright, uh, I love that you put God first, and then always making me feel like I'm a priority in your life. And I thank God for your mentorship and, you know, for your friendship as well. And really has been an inspiration, you know, for, for me as a man. And the influence you've had on me becoming a Christian and how you help me grow every day. You've been inspirational to me in a lot of ways. Watching you grow in your relationship with Christ, it has strengthened me and I think it's, <laughs> I think it's pretty incredible um, how God interwined our lives together. And I wanted to thank you for, for adopting me and being there for me. Thank you for being a wonderful granddaughter and daughter and for God giving us the privilege of raising you at this time of our life and influencing you. I love you. I love you for so many reasons and you inspire me daily to not only walk with Christ but to be a better man. Thank you so much for being obedient to God. Thank you for not abandoning me. Thank you for your steadfast love to him to lead me to Christ. I, I could never thank you enough for that. Can you hear me? Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I thought that was kind of a creative idea of just to going to each of our campuses and setting up what they call the Love One booth, booths, where they uh, just asked you to sit on one side, people that came in, and for those that you know, just share uh, how you love them and why you love them. And that's been kind of the theme of this whole series that we've been in, not to be mushy about it or anything, but, but just what does love look like, <clears throat> and what does it uh, require for you and I to take the risk to love in an intentional, even redemptive way. Uh, those around us. And so we've been looking at various themes associated with that. And just like you saw there in, in our video of the Love One booths today, we're going to talk about this idea of relationality and how love uh, can and must be cast in that light. Uh, Larry Crabb, an author, says that uh, love is this, that love is putting Christ on display in the way you relate to others. And I find that a very challenging definition. Most of us want to get away with defining love as simply an emotion or an action, you know, Nike, just do it or something like that. Larry says, no, love is all about relationship and how you relate to those around you is the barometer of love. And we're going <clears> to <throat> take a look at that uh, today. Uh, how many of you uh, take notes when it comes to uh, your, your experience here at Scotts Bible? Not as many of you in this service, a few of you, uh, maybe at our campuses and venues. Uh, if you look at your notes today in the uh, outline, it's a blank sheet of paper. And, and that, that's not indicative of my mind this week. It's actually the opposite. Uh, what happened was is that uh, 
My outline is due about midweek. I always get it in, and once in a great while, uh, I, I go into my study, I start putting the message together. I spend almost 20 hours each week on, on study and message prep, and I get to Friday, and this happened this week, and where I'm going with the story, where I feel God has led me, did not match the outline I submitted before. And again, thankfully, it doesn't happen too often, but I called my assistant uh, midday Friday from my home office, and I said, hey, can I change the outline? And I gave her mild anxiety because uh, we couldn't have time to print 5,000 new outlines. So thankfully, we had a group of volunteers, so don't you love it, who uh, came in, and they pulled the outline and put a blank sheet in there for you, so at least you could take notes based on the, the monitor. And uh, I, I know they worked hard on this because when I sent my PowerPoint then in, you know, to for the screen here, the person that does that, uh, she said, sorry, it took so long, I was stuffing bulletins today, and that was yesterday. So let's give it up for our volunteers that do that. Thank you. And, and as I say quite often for you note takers, as if, the, if this is the worst thing that happens you to you today, you're a blessed person. So uh, I hope it's not. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for all that you are to us in giving us Christ, the Holy Spirit, and even as we're going to see today, each other in this thing called the church. And so I pray, God, that as we have hopefully focused our minds and softened our hearts before you through our worship and through focusing on the needs of those around us, that, God, you might now be prepared to speak to us in and through your holy word. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I accepted Christ into my life 34 years ago, Joe was there uh, guiding me to the Lord. Uh, when I rededicated my life a couple of years after that, because I needed to do it again, my friend Bill was influential in helping me learn what it means to repent and to return to the Lord. Uh, when I heard and accepted a call into full-time Christian ministry a few years after that, Dr. Henry was there uh, telling me to strongly consider the local church as a place to put my efforts. Uh, when I first sensed a call to become a senior pastor, about a decade after that, my pastor Kevin was there helping me work through the spiritual fineries of that calling. Uh, about a decade ago, when I went through a rather dark time spiritually and needed to learn what it means to go deeper in the Lord and my own walk with him, my friend Larry was there helping me navigate what those waters look like and how I can travel them. Are you starting to see a pattern here? Uh, just about every major spiritual event that I as your pastor have had in my life, and there's been quite a few of them, and I consider them all defining moments, God has seen fit to provide a fellow human being who also happens to be a follower of Jesus to be there for that, a significant role in that journey. And I find that very interesting, if not fascinating. Some of you are saying, well, what's the big deal? There are some other people involved. Think about it. Those events that I mentioned and more are very personal events between me and God, between you and God. Very personal events, things like conversion, callings, recommitments, even marriage or other sacraments that we might go through. And we see them as just between us and God. And yet, ironically, when I audit these events that have happened to me, I realize that God chose to use the relationality of his people to also be a part of the process. 
And don't get me wrong, it isn't to say that there aren't times that you and I uh, don't have defining moments between just God and us. Of course we do. Uh, I mean, we have our own prayer closets and our own personal times with the Lord. But more often than not, I have found that God decides to use the vehicle of relationality of another to get us, to get me where he wants us to go. And though some of you are going to fight this today because you've seen your spiritual life as basically an island, just you and God, and you're kind of rugged about that, you're going to want to be open to what the Lord is saying in this because it really is the, the kind of the way he operates on a base level in our lives. And it's eminently biblical. I was thinking about it this week. I thought, you know, when Moses had some defining moments in his life, Aaron and Jethro, his father-in-law, were right there for those moments, at least some of them. When King David needed major times of spiritual breakthrough, God provided Nathan and Jonathan for those times. He provided Barnabas for Paul, Paul for Timothy, uh, Deborah for Barak. I mean, the list is endless. And so here's how it almost works, is that God looks at you, and because he loves you, he says, I'm about ready to do something profound and meaningful, life-changing in your life, and you're going to love me for it, but we're also going to involve one, two, or three other people in this, because I'm desiring to use some of my chosen servants in the process, because that's where I do my best work. And so, gang, here's what I'm convinced of as we continue in our fall series here at Scottsdale Bible, and it's our main point this weekend, and it's this, that God does his best work then in the realm of human relationships. It's really true. I mean, if you've ever wanted the kind of faith that mixes the vertical with the horizontal, that's God. He does his best work when he's using each of us in each other's lives to accomplish what he wants to do. Uh, now, to see this, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you brought one, to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be reading and looking at a story that's recorded here, but it's a true-to-life story. This isn't fiction. It happened in time and space. And it's found in verses 26 to 40, and it's affectionately called the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And we're going to read this story here today and see how it begins here, and then we'll start to make some sense of it. So Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. If you didn't bring a Bible, we'll put it up here on the screen. This is what it says. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Now he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, obviously, there are two main characters in this story that you and I need to dial into if we're going to understand what is going on here and what God is saying to us. So first, focus on Philip. Now, here's what you need to know for some of you who are veteran Bible readers. This is not Philip who was one of the 12. This is not the 12 disciples that are being talked about here. And Philip, who's one of the 12, this is Philip, who's referred to two chapters earlier in the book of Acts, who was one of the first seven deacons of the church. And you're saying, what's a deacon? 
That was an amazing thing that happens in Acts 6. In Acts 6, you have the first mega church ever uh, on planet Earth as far as New Testament churches go. You have this large gathering of new Christians in Jerusalem, about 3,000 of them gathering there uh, in Jerusalem, and you only have 12 apostles, the 12 original disciples of Jesus. And these guys are just overwhelmed with all the people needs. And their priority was to teach the word and to pray and do those things, and they needed help dealing with all the people stuff. So, for instance, there was a dispute in Acts chapter 6 between the Greek widows and then the Jewish widows over the distribution of food and resources. And the apostles were like, we need help with this. So they chose seven men, seven wise, godly, now watch this, relational men who didn't mind rolling up their sleeves and getting involved with God's people to help with all the work that was going on there. And you guessed it, in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, Philip is one of the men chosen. He's one of the first seven deacons chosen, a very relational guy. And then in Acts chapter 7, everything starts to come unglued. There's a major persecution that comes upon this church, and they are scattered based on this persecution all throughout the Holy Land. I don't mean to belittle any of your problems, but some of you are here this morning with some weighty things in your life right now. Uh, Well, back there in Acts chapter 7, they lost their houses, uh, they lost their jobs, their families were all split up. It was a massive persecution that sent these 3,000 Christians scattered throughout the Holy Land. And God did it for a purpose. God did it because he wanted to get his word out and he wanted these people to get out and tell others about him. And this is where Philip has an interesting story. If you want to look here on the map, I want to show you what happens here. We're in Jerusalem with 3,000 people in Acts 6. And then, as I said, in Acts 7, there's this great dispersion. And it says in Acts chapter 8 that Philip goes up to Samaria which would be the next province to the north, a a province that didn't have as many Jews. It was a lot more Gentile and a lot of people who were very far from God and from Judaism. And it's in here where in in Samaria that Philip then starts to preach the gospel of Jesus. He starts to do miracles and healings. I mean, he's a man being used by God and he's got a great ministry. So his life is a mess He's been kicked out of his home, kicked out of his city, but because he's staying close to God and because he's still trusting in Christ, the Lord is using him in the lives of people. And then as we just read in our story before us, let's go back to that right now, God then says to Philip, I want you to go down to the desert road. Now that would have been wild. Because see, look here on the map. The desert road goes down past Jerusalem and it's this deserted road between Jerusalem and Gaza, which you've heard of the Gaza Strip. Back then, Gaza was about as far south as you dare went in the Holy Land. Before, below that would be Egypt. And this was a very lonely, even dangerous road. And it's there that God is sending Philip in order to run into the Ethiopian eunuch. And what I need you to see more than anything else before we get to this Ethiopian is simply the fact, that this will be important for us, that Philip was attuned to God's leading. Did you catch that there? I mean, it's unmistakable. It says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go. So he arose and went, verses 26 and 27. And then again, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this guy's chariot. And it says, Philip ran to him and heard him reading. So twice there, you got Philip being attuned to God's leading. 
And you got to love the Bible experts because as I was reading a bunch of commentaries this week on this passage, they all bicker back and forth on whether Philip actually heard an audible voice or whether it was more of an internal prompting. I mean, they actually have words for it. They say, did Philip actually have an external visitation from God or was it more of a compelling intuition from God? And there's really no answer to that. We don't know. The text isn't clear enough on this. But the reality is, is that however it works, we do know this one thing. Philip was staying close to God, and because he was staying close to God, he heard him when he spoke to him. He sensed his nudges, and he was able to go in light of those promptings. Now hang on to that, and let's talk for a second about the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, I'm, I'm not going to talk about what a eunuch is. If you don't know what a eunuch is right now, uh, you can Google it later. I would encourage you not to Google the pictures part of it. Just Google the, the text part of it. But eunuchs were commonly used. It was a barbaric practice. It was commonly used back in ancient times to serve in the king and queen's court in administrative and financial functions because obviously a eunuch could not be swayed by sexual passions. And so this guy was an actual eunuch in Ethiopia, which was about as far away from the Holy Land into Africa that they knew of back then. You got the Middle East, Egypt, Ethiopia is below that. And yet this man is found worshiping in Jerusalem. Now that is a very, very interesting thing that's happening here. I mean, it would not be at common at all for an Ethiopian, which was a very different religion back then, to be worshiping uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, in the temple in Jerusalem. And so what most commentators point out is that at the very least, this guy had God working on the very surface of his heart. I mean, he was a seeker of the best caliber, if not already a Gentile convert. He was very interested in the true God and the things of God. But as we know, he had yet to find his way because he knew nothing about Jesus, nothing about the atonement, nothing about belief and faith. It was Judaism at that time that he was seeking through. And now, now I need you to see more than anything else my main point. Because at this point, we need to not miss the big picture and it's this, that God sees this seeking Ethiopian and his heart that's turned toward him. God sees Philip, this man whose life is a mess like some of yours, but he's staying faithful and true to God, and he's staying in the ring with God, and he's listening to God. And because God is a God of relationality, because God does his best work when he brings human beings together to allow them to instruct one another, he's about to make an introduction. And yet that introduction would not happen if Philip was not attuned to the nudgings of God. Amen? Let's take another run at that one. This introduction is not going to happen if Philip is not attuned to the things of God. Amen? And that's what you and I need to see before we move on. We're going to take off here in a minute and talk about what relationship looks like when we dare enter into it on a spiritual level like this. But please know, if you're not sensitive to the leading of God, if your heart is hard or if your life is so busy and marginless that you never hear God speak to your spirit about things, you're never going to have the kind of experiences that God wants you to have in being used by him in the lives of others. Philip was open to the things of God. He was open to God's leading on a daily level. And though some of you argue, well, it's kind of nebulous and, you know, it's kind of subjective. Yeah, that's the point. 
Uh, but God wants us to be open to these promptings so that we might know when to take the risk to love those around us. And our antennas constantly need to be attuned and up to the things of God so that we just might hear him. I've been a Christian again for, for a long time, it feels like, and I can remember, uh, Kim, you'll remember this, I was just a Christian for a few years, you and I were engaged at that time, so it was the year 1987, I was working as an intern uh, during seminary at my home church in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, and I'll never forget one night, I was working late as an intern, there was nobody else at church, it was about dinner time, and this is a country church, so we didn't lock the church, you know, and we didn't, there's no things like that. All of our problems are more misdemeanor problems, not felony problems. And so I'm sitting there at the church alone, and I hear somebody walking around outside. And then I hear a, hello, hello. And I come out, and there's this dude about my age there, and I said, hey, can I help you? And he looked at me kind of weird, because I didn't look like a minister back then. You know, I looked like a young kid at the church. And he said, hey, my, my car broke down on 306 right in front here. Um, can I use the phone? And I said, sure. And so he made a phone call, and I could hear that he couldn't get through to the person who was trying to reach way before the day of cell phones. And so I got off the phone, and, and, uh, and I said, what do you need? He said, well, I, I could kind of use a ride, you know, to my home. It's just around the corner there. Uh, you know, could you give me a ride there? And I said, you know, I really can't because I got this date with Kim, and I'd rather be with her than I would with a lost person. And so, no, I didn't say any of that. I said, uh, of course, I'd be happy to give you a ride uh, uh, where you need to go. And then he said this to me, and it was really an amazing thing. He said, you know, <laughs> I just don't find it a coincidence that my car broke down in front of a church. <laughs> and I said, don't you ever go to church? And he said, hardly ever. And he said, and this is kind of weird. Now, again, I could have said to him, well, look, Mark, his name is Mark. I could have said, you know, Mark, I got to tell you, there's 350,000 churches in the United States. Statistically, it wouldn't be that unusual for your car to break down in front of one. I could have said that, right? But I don't think that would have been the thing to say. I said, really? <laughs> it's funny. It's kind of interesting. Your car breaks down. And then I said this. I said, are you, are you ever interested in spiritual things? And I loved his hands. He said, well, not up until this point. <laughs> And I've told this story before, but I drove Mark to his home, and I just started asking questions. We'll see why that is important in a minute. I started asking questions about his life, and boy, it just opened up a whole realm of dialogue in which then I met with him numerous times after that, and very shortly after that, Mark received Jesus Christ into his life as his Lord and Savior. But I always wondered, what would have happened if that night I had not been attuned at all? To God's leading? What if that night I had said, no, I really I want to get to see this beautiful woman whom I'm in love with, and I got a date with her, and I'd rather do that, or if I wanted to say, really, it freaks you out that your car ran you know, in front of a church? Come on, that happened. I mean, no, I wasn't thinking, all I was thinking about was here's a guy who's wondering about God, and here's me, and, and there's a divine placement here, and I need to be sensitive to this. I, I don't mean to put undue pressure on you guys, but look, as I've said to you through this whole series, God really is pinning his hopes when it comes to reaching our community on you and I. I. I mean, it's not on the pastors. It's not on the professionals. It's on you. And all the relationships that God has you in, week in and week out, he wants your antennas to be up for what you, he might be trying to do in the lives of those around you. And as you're seeing today, the role that you might play in that. Don't be immune to his nudges. Don't be so busy that you miss that. Slow down and listen to him. Philip did, and things are just about ready to heat up. 
Now, once we establish this fact that God does his best work in the realm of human relationships and hence wants us to pour into those around us with the gospel on a relational level, the question becomes, and it's a $10 question, what does this actually look like, right? I mean, it's one thing to talk about relationship. Everybody believes that's important. But from a biblical standpoint, how do you and I posture ourselves relationally as those who claim to know Jesus Christ in a, the best way that stands a chance of them hearing us and wanting to know more about Christ. And there's three things that this story reveals to us, three things that you and I can do as we love those around us that stands the best chance of God using us for a spiritual defining moment in their lives. And here's the first thing, and men, this is going to be greatly challenging to you and I especially, and it's this, that in our relationality, we must be respectful and gentle with others. Whoa. I want to show you how this works in living color here. Look at what happens next in our story. Look at verses 30 and 31. Philip is now approaching the Ethiopian on a relational level, and this is what happens next. It says, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? He asked Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited, he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. I got to tell you, what blows me away, this passage might seem so casual to some of you, because it is, it's just a descriptive scene, but there's more here than meets the eye. What blows me away is how Philip begins this relational interaction with asking a question. Did you pick up on that? I mean, I know a lot of Christians today, and I'm stunned. Many Christians today would not have approached this that way. They meet somebody at work reading the Bible who doesn't know anything about the Bible, who doesn't go to church, and they're going to say, oh, you're reading the Bible? Well, let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you. Thus saith the Lord. That's the book of Isaiah. Let me tell you about that. I mean, we tend to be a directive bunch of people, don't we? We tend to know the truth. We tend to, we watch a lot of Fox News. And so, you know, we're the kind of people that we're going to tell you what's up. But it's interesting, Philip, who, by the way, knew what was up, wasn't leading with that foot, was he? He led with a foot of relationality that asks a question as a lead-in and a very simple question. Hey, do you understand what you're reading here? And I love the Ethiopian's answers. Well, I really can't, and this is pretty intricate stuff, as we'll see in a minute. And then I love what happens next. You don't want to miss this, gang. It says that he invited Philip to come up. That word invited in the original Greek text that the New Testament was written in is the Greek word parakaleo. It's actually a combination of two Greek words, the Greek word para and the word kaleo. Para means to come alongside Kaleo means to call out to somebody. So put together, the word literally means to call somebody alongside you. It's one of the most relational terms that Luke, the guy who's writing this, could have used to describe this scene. Because as he's asked a question by Philip, it then says that this Ethiopian invited Philip. He said, hey, come up here alongside me and let's dialogue some more. I'm inviting you into my relational world to now have a conversation with me. And here's the point. Being respectful and gentle always opens a door like that and stands the best chance of somebody wanting to listen to us. It's really true. 
I was in a conference recently with a bunch of large church pastors, and I was just sharing lately my passion as I go into my 50s of how I really believe more than ever that the, the, the greatest calling for the local church is to be the most loving place on planet Earth. Because I'm convinced that biblically it's through love and God's love poured through us that causes a, 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 uh, an even antagonistic world to want to listen to us. So I was sharing this. And I kid you not, I mean, I, you got to love large church pastors. They can be so brash. This one guy who pastors a very large church here in the area said to me, really, Jamie, really? You want me to take love back to the men in my church? That's what he said. He, he said, you want me to tell the men in my church just to love more? You know what I said to him? I said, uh, in a word, yes. I said, because I don't think they do it very well. And most of them do think love is more of a feminine type of thing. But at the end of the day, when they're going to bed each night and their thoughts are with them, they know that their hearts long more for the love of God. And even more, they know that their wife, their kids, their friends, their coworkers, everybody wants more love out of them because they just ain't getting it. So yes, I'd like you to take love back to your church if you don't mind. What a very loving thing I thought, but that was the point anyways. <laughs> Let me show you this, guys, because some of you men are fighting this already. Uh, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, say it with me, gentle and humble in heart. Interesting. Paul loved that so much that he says in 2 Corinthians 10.1, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away, meaning in his writings, and then it just doesn't stop. It takes off from here. Gentleness makes it as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, evidence that you know God. Ephesians 4.2, Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. And then in Philippians 4.5, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. In 1 Thessalonians 2.7, he says, but we were gentle among you. Are you starting to see a pattern here? <laughs> It's like a scratch CD stuck on the same few notes. Here's what the Bible is saying, that in your lead foot, when you enter into a relationship, enter in with respect and gentleness. That's going to stand the best chance of being heard. A kind answer turns away wrath, as the proverb says. And don't hear me wrong, men, especially. This doesn't mean that there won't come a time that you can be firm, that there won't come a time that you can be prophetic and speak the truth, as we're going to see in a second. Of course there will. And God wants us to, but you're only going to earn that right by being gentle and respectful initially and even along the way. Because anything else, they're just going to close up on us. And I think Christians have a lot to learn when it comes to that today. If I seem at all passionate about this, it's only because as I point one finger at you, there are three pointing back at me. I've been a Christian 34 years, and this has been one of the hardest lessons for me. Uh, my niece is here, Margo. She goes to Grand Canyon uh, University, and uh, her dad is my younger brother. And Pete and I couldn't be wired more differently. My parents would tell you that. Uh, my brother Pete is very nice. He's laid back. He, he's easygoing. He's come what may. I mean, he's a typical baby buster. Uh, uh, myself, I am type A, hard driving, uh, kind of loud at times, as some of you found out, and, and, and all of that. And, and I'm just very different than, than my brother Pete. And so when I first became a Christian... I really believed that what God wanted me to do more than anything was to get into people's face and yell from the mountaintops that they need to repent. I, when I first became a Christian, I, I was in a fraternity in college. Can you imagine that? I'd already joined the fraternity, and this thing was like animal house. It was just decadent as decadent could be. And here I am, radically saved. And honestly, for the first year, 
I mean, I drove my fraternity brothers nuts because every single conversation I had with them was confrontational in nature. We'd be sitting, I kid you not, we'd be sitting at the dinner table and I would say to them, okay, here's the conversation for tonight, men. Hell, because hell is a long time for you to burn without Jesus. And I mean, I'd just be like, whoa, right out there. And this is a true story. I, after about probably four or five weeks of that, they eventually locked me in a room. They really did. They tricked me. They said, why don't you go in this room? We want to talk to you. They put me in the room and then they all left and they locked the key. And I'm pounding on the door and I'm saying, let me out. And they said, we're not letting you out until you chill out and stop bugging us about Jesus. And eventually they let me out of the room. And I, and I kid you not, here's how dense I was. I went running to the only other two Christians on campus that I knew of. And I went running to them. And I said to them, I'm being persecuted. <laughs> and I felt so justified and vindicated in my spirit, you know, that I was one. And I'll never forget this one, one of the only two Christians on campus, Keith, who was an older guy who was going back to school. He looked at me and he said, well, I'm really not sure you're being persecuted as much as you're driving everybody crazy around you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, and again, he just taught me, he said, respectful, gentle. He said, they're going to be interested in the gospel. God's working at their hearts and minds. But you need to lead with a better foot. And I got to tell you guys, that was back in 1982. And to this day, I still am learning this one. How about some of you men? For us who are type A, who want to get things done, this is a hard lesson for us to realize that God does his best work in the realm of relationality and he wants to use us in that way and we have to lead with a gentle foot. This is more ammunition than I want some of you to have, but Kim is here as my witness. It would not be unusual that when I am leaving in the morning to go out for a day here at church, that Kim will yell from our upstairs bedroom, be nice, as I'm heading out the door. And I think to myself, why does my wife have to tell me to be nice as I'm heading to church? Well, she just might know something about me that maybe so. Hannah once said that to me. Hannah once said, does anybody at church know that you're not always nice? And, and it's true, I'm not. And I'm not proud of that. Please don't hear me saying that. I'm not. I, I have a humble spirit, hopefully. And when people tell me, boy, have you just been rude? <laughs> Many times I'll say, yeah, oh gosh, again, again? You'd think I'd be over that by this age, but I'm not. But it's a good reminder for all of us that if we're ever going to win the day, if we're ever going to see God use us, it's because we begin with what he's talking about here and what Philip shows us. Now, I know how some of you think. You're thinking, well, do I ever get a chance to get around to the truth? Uh, yeah, you do. Uh, because look at the second thing that Philip teaches us. Because as he leads with this foot of respect and foot of gentleness... Uh, he does get to share the gospel, but here's what you need to know is that in our relationality, we need to be clear about what the gospel is and about the scriptures. We must clearly know the gospel and the scriptures. Let me explain. Uh, look at verses 32 and 35 as the story continues on. Everything's heating up at this point. It says, now the passage of scripture that he was reading, the Ethiopian, was this. And this is a direct quote from Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8. And it says, like a sheep... He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I asked, does this prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
that incredible? What I find fascinating here is that Philip begins by asking a question. The Ethiopian invites him up to his chariot, and then the Ethiopian asks Philip a question. And it's only at that point that Philip then gets a chance to share the content of the gospel. And just so you know, the question the Ethiopian asks here was not an easy question. I see Kathy's here today, I mean, knows a lot about Jewish history. Uh, this verse was very confusing to the vast majority of Jewish scholars in Jesus' day. These two chapters out of Isaiah are called the suffering servant chapters, and they argued a lot back then. Is this referring to Isaiah? Is this referring to the Messiah? Because referring to Messiah, we don't think the Messiah is going to suffer. I mean, he's not coming here to suffer. He's coming here to lead. And, and so they really wrestled with, who is this referring to? And so the question the Ethiopian is asking is perfect. I mean, who's this guy that's been humiliated and dying and suffering, and why would he do that? Philip knows the answer. Philip had just been introduced to Jesus, the Messiah, who died on a wooden cross for the sins of humankind and was now calling all of humanity who are stuck in their sins to believe and trust in him and his substitutionary death for them. So Isaiah 53 made perfect sense to Philip. And he shares this with the Ethiopian. And we know the Ethiopian believes this because it's in a footnote in the ESV. But in verse 37, after the Ethiopian says, can I get baptized, which is a sign of his belief, Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And so he replies, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he now gets it. And this is that divine, powerful, spiritual moment I've been telling you about all along. This is just between that Ethiopian and God. I mean, he's coming home to Jesus for the very first time. Irenaeus, an early church writer, will actually go on to write that this Ethiopian would become a missionary to Ethiopia, the very first one, as a result of this experience with the Lord. And Philip is right there in the process with him, guiding him in how all of this works because Philip has been down a similar road himself. But again, here's what you and I need to take away from this. If Philip was not clear on the gospel message and if Philip was not clear on what God wants as a response to the gospel, none of this would have happened. I'm just amazed today, we as Christians, we argue with our world around us about so many things. You ever notice that? And they're all meaningful things. We argue with them about, you know, evolution versus creation and uh, the nature of values and now marriage is a huge one and all of those things. And those are all very worthy arguments. I feel strongly based on God's word about all of those things. But do we all realize, give me a head nod here, that none of those are the core of the gospel. Those are all things that my guess is you came to believe after you came to Jesus. <laughs> I, I doubt, unless you were raised in a really conservative, you know, uh, type of home, that, that you had most of us came to that value system because of Jesus. So why would we argue with people who don't know Jesus about all of those things? No, what we need to do first is help them introduce them to Jesus, then allow him to change them. And so part of what we need to do when we communicate the gospel, I said this last week, is never veer from just four words. Do you guys remember what those four words were from last week? God, sin, Christ, and you. 
That's the gospel. God loves you. Sin separates. Christ took your penalty upon himself, and you need to believe and trust in him. God sent Christ in you. Let's confine it to that. That's what Philip did, and it paid off greatly. And then, one last thing that Philip shows us, and with this we're done because we're fast running out of time, but let's wrap up the story. Philip then does a third thing that is so profound, and that is that he hangs in there with the Ethiopian until God moves him on. So I take from that that we need to hang in there with those around us in a relational way until God might move us on. Uh, Look at how this story ends in verses 36 through 40. It says, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And then the inclusion of verse 37 is a footnote here. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Which, by the way, if you read on in the book of Acts, 12 chapters later in Acts 20, it tells us that Philip uh, stayed in Caesarea, had four daughters in Caesarea who were all walking with the Lord, being used by the Lord, and he was one of the greatest. They actually called him Philip the Evangelist, Philip the Servant, as the one uh, who now was really leading the way in Caesarea. Uh, But go back to what this is wrapping up with here. Notice that the next step after salvation for this guy was to be baptized, instructive for you and I. And if you have not been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, we're doing a push this month for that, and uh, you need to be baptized. This Ethiopian got it. Baptism is a sign and a symbol of your salvation. As the water washes away dirt from the body, as water cleanses us, so Christ has cleansed us, and we get baptized as a response to his cleansing. It's a sacrament, it's an ordinance, it's a right and privilege, if you will, of being a Christian. And this Ethiopian knows this. And so it's interesting that Philip guides him through this next thing after he becomes a Christian, getting baptized. And then it says that the Spirit carried him away. The NSB uses the word snatched. And again, you guess that the commentators focus on this one and wrestle with, was he actually literally snatched away in some sort of Star Trek beam me up Scotty sort of way? Or was it more just like, hey, the spirit strongly compelled him to leave, you know, in his spirit and they all big. It, it doesn't really say. I will tell you, though, for whatever it's worth, that the word <clears throat> is hardly ever used outside of a physical context. So it's the same word that was used of the Jews when it said they wanted to snatch Jesus and take him by force. That's the same word used here. So the connotation is is that God literally was doing a lot of miracles there and he pulled him away miraculously. But even if it's not, even if God just pressed on his spirit and he left, the point is, is that he moved on. And there are times that we move on to other relationships. But what's interesting here is that Philip didn't move on till God moved him on. Why is that important? Because I find many times Christians today, what we tend to do is we tend to share our faith with somebody and then we quickly move on to the next person. And if they accept Christ, great. And if not, then, you know, well, hey, it's their, it's their eternity, not mine. You know, and things like that. And, and, and it's almost like we then treat people like projects rather than people. And once our project is done, then we move on. And I'm telling you, that's not God's way. God treats us as individuals made in his image, worthy of love and respect. And Philip showed that here. 
And so honestly, do you guys understand when somebody comes to Christ, our work just begins, one-on-one follow-up, small group activity, Sunday school, Bible studies, helping them find a worship place, helping them serve God, helping them learn how to walk with God with prayer and reading the word. Somebody has to show them how to do all that. Nobody is better than the one who was there at their salvation. And so honest, honest, guys, take that for what it's worth. I think that's so key. Next week, uh, here in the Shea campus, we have Cactus and Venue and, uh, and Mountain Valley joining us right now in the chapel. Ne- next week, uh, here at the Shea campus, we get into our new sanctuary. As Neil said earlier, it's going to be quite a weekend here at Shea and on the other two campuses uh, because this really signifies the completion, not financially, we'll talk about that, but the completion of our Compelled by Grace uh, journey in which we dedicate that sacred space that you guys are going to love. I promise you. You're gonna, well, I can't. I guess I can't say it. Some of you are really picky, but I think you're going to like it. <laughs> the space that we have there next week. Um, it really is a special sacred place that we've developed. But I want to warn you about something that I warned you about a few weeks ago, and with this will be done. And that's that. Um, part of the design of Compelled by Grace has been to create a lot more space. Some of you were here five years ago. Man, we were out of space. We were doing five services every weekend. Our kids' ministry, our teens' ministry, overflowing. I mean, it was just a madhouse, parking, everything. And so a huge part of what you have helped create here with your involvement in Compelled by Grace has been to say, now let's take the single campus we have, let's start another campus or two, Mountain Valley Cactus, and let's create space. And starting next weekend, as some folks maybe come back from Mountain Valley or Cactus or people shift around and they're welcome to stay, we hope they stay, things like that, um, we're going to sense that on all of our campuses and even here at Shea, we got a lot of space. Might not feel that way in Shea next week because we're combining the chapel, the venue, and everybody in the worship center, but the week after that, um, I wouldn't be surprised if at some of the services you look around and go, wow, this feels like there's a lot, there's some, some seats here. And that's right, because we have 700 seats here, and you know how many we've built over there? 2,000. 2,000 individual auditorium seats, and then we have enough for four or 500 at Mountain Valley, and then uh, four or 500 at Cactus, and we do services three times over every weekend. We have doubled our capacity, and that was by design. Because whenever you see an empty chair, whether here or Mountain Valley, Chapel, Venue, Cactus, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of the Ethiopian. I want you to think of that person in Scottsdale, Phoenix, Mesa, Gilbert, Anthem, wherever you live. I want you to think of that person in our region whom God is working on the very surface of their soul. They're actually pining for him. They want to know him. They're maybe even doing a shot in the dark, reading the Bible on their own, and they don't get it. They don't understand any of it. And God wants to use you to be relationally sensitive enough to enter into their world, ask questions, be respectful, journey with them, and then eventually when the time is right, share with them what you know about Jesus. And if they say yes, then great, now you have a church home for them. If they say no right away, then you say, guess what? Would you consider coming to my church and let's seek together? And you know what you can be able to say to them? I'll bet you there'll be a seat for you. I'll bet you, because we just did this thing called Compelled by Grace, and we have lots of seats available now. And you're going to find God uses you in a profound way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for these stories that we talk about here that our kids know from Sunday school, but we find have such rich depth even for us as adults 
who need to apply these things to our lives. God, there is not one person here in this worship center or at Cactus Venue, Mountain Valley, or Chapel that does not have a significant realm of relationality around them. We have friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, fellow students, service providers. God, we all interact with people. And Lord, as we're seeing in this series, you want us to be the initiators to love and to reach out in a redemptive way to those around us. So help us to do that, we pray. Open and close doors as you see fit, as we've seen today. May we be very sensitive to your leading. And we, Lord, pray that you might move and breathe in our midst as a result. More than anything, would you change lives of those that you have prepared to call to yourself. And we pray this in Christ's name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week in the sanctuary.